0: Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lithub
1: Radio. Welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg, and I'm a children's book author. And I'm Eve Johalem.
0: I'm also a children's book author. In each episode of this podcast, we use books as a way to explore topics that fascinate us. And in this episode, we consider one of the most enigmatic and talented street photographers to emerge in our lifetime, the photographer nanny Vivian Meyer.
1: I remember seeing news coverage a while back about a treasure trove of phenomenal photographs that had been discovered after a storage locker auction and the subsequent realization that the pictures were taken by a woman who worked her whole life as a nanny. It was a story that resonated, capturing the attention of the public and art critics worldwide. But even after two documentaries were made about Vivian, one of which, Finding Vivian Meyer, was nominated for an Oscar, there were still many, many questions that remained. So when we saw that there was a new book out that answered a lot of those questions, we decided to reach out to the author of the book, Anne Marks, for this episode. I think a
0: lot of us watched the Finding Vivian Meyer documentary and thought, gosh, Vivian's fascinating and there's a lot we still don't know. And then we went on our merry way, but not Anne. After watching the documentary, she devoted years of her life researching the questions that the film left unanswered. And she became one of the few people who's seen all of Vivian's personal records and the complete archive of her 140,000 images. All of that work is the basis for Anne's book, Vivian Meyer Developed, The Untold Story of the Photographer Nanny.
1: The Wall Street Journal calls the book, a gorgeous artifact that deepens our understanding of the mystery and then methodically unravels it. It is a gorgeous book, all glossy pages filled with Vivian's photographs, many of them in color. And on top of that, it tells a fascinating story. It's quite an accomplishment, all the more so when you consider that Anne isn't a professional writer. She spent 30 years as a senior executive in large corporations and served as chief marketing officer of Dow Jones. It was only after her retirement from the corporate world that she became an internationally renowned resource on Vivian's life and work. Anne's research has been featured in major media outlets, including the Chicago Tribune, the New York Times, and the Associated Press.
0: We started our conversation with Anne by discussing the moment when Vivian's work was first discovered. Here's how Anne described it.
2: The finding of Vivian's photographs is like a miracle. All these different events had to fall into place for her work to be discovered and not basically been thrown in the trash. So what happened was Vivian was a hoarder and she hoarded newspapers and photographs and she put them in storage lockers. And she spent most of her disposable income on these storage lockers. And I guess for 25 years, sometimes she would pay for them and sometimes she would just wait until they kind of came after her to pay the bills.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: When she was older, she stopped paying the bill on time and the storage locker went um, in default. And so it was put up for auction and a guy saw the photographs, and by the way, they weren't you know in nice little bundles or in um, protected you know, sections or anything. A lot of them were just loose. And they auctioned them off in boxes with lots of different materials from Vivian, and about 10 different people bought the boxes in an auction for a very little amount of money. And then... John Belouf, who was one of them, was going to use them for just a book that he was going to write. It was a very unusual situation. He lived across from the auction house and he had bought these and just put them aside. But one day, about two months after he bought them, he started looking at these images and thought they were incredible. He had never done anything like this before, but he found out who bought the other boxes and bought their boxes. And he just had this inclination to collect her work. He wasn't a photographer. He had no background in it. He was an artist, though. And he just started to collect it and then put it online and it took off. And that's how the whole thing got started.
1: And what was it about Vivian's art and Vivian herself that caused John to spend so many years of his life and so much of his savings researching her, collecting her art, documenting it and sharing it with the public?
2: Well, there's something about her photography that has an emotion to it. You know, you really connect to it. It shows real people. It's very nuanced. She covered a lot of different topics. So I like to say there's something for everyone, um, something that a lot of different people around the world can relate to, because basically she's capturing humanity.
0: And after he'd been putting the photographs on his blog for a few years, he worked with the Cultural Center in Chicago to put together an exhibition of her work in 2011. What was the response when Vivian's photography became public, the popular response and the critical response?
2: Well, word was already getting around by then. And it was interesting because John had tried actually to get a museum interested in Vivian. um, But for a number of technical reasons, no one was interested. So he went to the cultural center. And it was the largest show that um, they had ever had. It was just packed. All the press came and everybody really just wanted to write about this sort of mysterious photographer nanny. And then that's when, you know, everything really, really took off around the world.
0: There are so many different interesting aspects to this story. There's Vivian herself, there's her artwork, and then it's also a story of the making of a market for a particular artist. Would you agree with that?
2: Yeah, it's actually interesting. The site that John first put the pictures on was called Hardcore Photography, and it was a subset on Flickr. You can still go on it today because they archived the original Conversations and you can see how people that were really into photography discussed the work and how it they shared it and how it took off. And it's one of the examples of, you know, artwork, one of the first examples of it really kind of flying through cyberspace and really taking off in that way. Sorry, can I just ask really quickly, you said the museums weren't
1: interested. Was the critical response generally not as positive as the popular response, or you said there were technical issues that prevented the museums from wanting them?
2: The critical response was good, as was the popular response. I mean, it was great. Every newspaper, magazine, television show around the world wanted to, um, you know, tell the story and show Vivian's work. But what happened is most of Vivian's work is in the form of negatives an undeveloped film, or it originally was. And only 5% of her 140,000 photos were printed. Museums don't want to have to print the work because they feel it's not really authentic relative to um, the artist. They want vintage prints. And that's one of the reasons even today that Vivian's work hasn't been widely accepted in museums across the country.
1: There's something very compelling about the interplay between the art and the artist in Vivian's case. How much do you think the appeal of her photographs is affected by our knowledge that she's an unknown at the time and self-trained nanny? And how much do you think the appeal of Vivian is affected by our having seen her photographs?
2: Well... You know, it's all intertwined, of course, but at the time she was discovered, her story was as interesting as the photographs. Here you have this um, nanny who left a huge trove of masterful um, photographs, and no one understood where she came from, why she photographed, you know, what she thought of her work, and then the work itself. is beloved, really. I mean, I know that Howard Greenberg Gallery that handles Vivian um, said it was, you know, the biggest new artist they ever introduced as far as sales were concerned. What I found from my research, even though I loved many of Vivian's photographs, because I now understand her whole photographic development and have placed her photographs in the context of her life, for me at least, they take on a much greater meaning. I understand, in many cases, why she took the photographs that she did. Yeah,
1: that's interesting. I was going to say, you know, John Malouf and other early collectors and the viewers of his blog at first, they were able to assess Vivian's art without knowing who she was. At the same time, many of the people who knew Vivian personally assessed her without having seen any of her photographs because she rarely shared them. So I'm wondering if you have a sense of whether or how these assessments changed once the two pieces of the puzzle came together.
2: Well, of course, other than the Ginsburg family, who she was very close to, and she shared photographs with them, most people were surprised, very surprised, because first of all, even those that knew she photographed, they had no idea, you know, the extent and the quality and then some people that she worked with, those that she really wasn't that comfortable with, in my opinion, didn't even know she took pictures. She would not walk out with her camera if she wasn't really comfortable with the family you know, she sort of hid herself. Mm-hmm. So everybody was surprised um, at you know, the quality of her work. But I think more surprising was the humanity of her work. Here is a woman that didn't open up, that often seemed cold, very private, and her pictures were just full of life and warmth and emotion. And people have wondered, and this is one of the reasons I wanted to really delve into her life, was how could a woman that appeared this way take pictures that had such a sense of humanity in them?
1: There's so much that's fascinating about this story, it is hard to know where to begin. One thing that intrigues me is that we have here so many people without formal training who wind up pursuing a passion with remarkable results. There's of course, Vivian herself, And then shortly before she dies, John Maloof wanders across the street one day and buys a box of her stuff at auction solely because he's considering writing a book about his neighborhood. He ends up dedicating years of his life to collecting, cataloging, and promoting her art and creating an Oscar-nominated documentary. Plus, we have this remarkable book from Anne, a retired business executive who got curious. There's so much evidence here of the life-changing power of art whether in creating it or in striving to understand it and its origins.
0: There is. Perhaps more cynically, I was interested in the marketplace mechanics here. It's very hard to create a market for an unknown living artist, and even harder to create one for someone who's died. It's remarkable that that's happened for Vivian. But the limitations of that market are equally interesting. Anne mentioned that museums are reluctant to acquire Vivian's work, and that in large part, that's because the majority of her photographs were printed posthumously. Well, in the art world, it matters that an artist is alive to choose which images get printed and how many to print of each one. So typically, a fine art photographer will limit the number of each print they choose to a small edition of, say, 3 or 10 or 20 or whatever. And then after the artist dies, nobody's going to dip into that archive to print images that the artist didn't authorize, because that would dilute the market for the original prints. In Vivian's case, her dealer or whoever owns the rights to her work could theoretically print however many they want of whatever images they want. I'm not saying they would do that. Her dealer, Howard Greenberg, is a very reputable and knowledgeable person. But that uncertainty and Vivian's lack of participation are probably what's limiting her market. And then, of course, some museums just don't acquire posthumous work. You know, these art marketplace rules may seem arbitrary, But the value of art is arbitrary. I mean, if you think about it, it costs nothing, relatively speaking, for Van Gogh to buy paint and canvas. And now people pay hundreds of millions of dollars for his work because, I mean, why? Partly because he painted 900 paintings and will never paint anymore. And all the paintings that are in museums are essentially out of the marketplace. Or maybe it's also that life-changing power of art that you were talking about. Art is worth so much to people because of the impact that it has.
1: That is all so fascinating. I didn't know any of it, and it's just so thought-provoking. Another thing I'm really interested in is how our understanding of Vivian's life affects our thinking about her art and vice versa. With that in mind, we asked Anne more about what she learned as she researched Vivian's history.
0: At one point in the book, you write Perhaps the greatest myth associated with Vivian is that she felt marginalized, unhappy, and unfulfilled, that her life story is sad. In fact, the opposite is true. Vivian was a survivor and had the fortitude and capabilities to break away from family dysfunction and exponentially improve her lot in life. So we have two questions about this. First, can you tell us about Vivian the woman, the human being? And also, what makes people assume that she felt marginalized, unhappy, and unfulfilled, and what make I guess, three questions. And what makes you say that that's too simple a picture?
2: Yes. Well, okay, so first of all, Vivian the woman was extraordinary. Putting her photographs aside, I really came to believe that she was a very special person in her own right. She grew up in a sort of abusive household. She had a very bad childhood. She ended up separating herself from her family. She was raised with sort of a sense of emotional deprivation, but she had such inner resources. She was so intelligent, so interested in the world that she was able to just rise above it at all and create a brand new life for herself. And not only did she do that, and she created quite a satisfying life, you know, working in a field she wanted to work, taking her pictures experiencing culture and travel to a very great degree for someone, you know, in her status in life. But she also really cared about the greater good. She was deeply involved in issues, social issues and politics. She was a feminist from day one and she never looked at herself as an underdog as other people did. She looked at other people that way and she wanted to help them And so for someone who had an upbringing like hers, that's pretty extraordinary, regardless of her photographic talent. And I think what happened when Vivian was first discovered, Mm -hmm. No one knew much about her. And they looked at her life from their own perspective, like, you know, the art community, journalists, and said, oh, this poor woman, she was so talented, and she just was a nanny, and she had to listen to other people, and she must have wanted to be a professional fine art photographer, and she couldn't get anything off of the ground, and she must have been so upset and frustrated, and she died with no one knowing her talent, and, oh, this is such a sad story. And that's not what happened, Mm -hmm. you know, at all, because I was able, first of all, to understand her photography in New York when she first started out. I met her friends and employers there, and she actually was trying to become a professional photographer, and she enjoyed that, but she really had trouble over time because of effects from her childhood really letting go of her photographs. And that's really why she couldn't be a professional photographer, even if she wanted to. But within the confines of that, she led a very happy life. She liked being a nanny. She um, traveled around the world. She went to plays and she took pictures of celebrities. She sort of role-played in photography as a professional, acting like a photojournalist and a paparazzi. So, you know, my belief is that the original people got it wrong because they were projecting themselves, you know, onto her life.
1: What did you learn about the dysfunction in Vivian's family that she managed to break free from? You, you say it was all set in motion by the decision of a frightened 17-year-old field worker in France who refused to marry Vivian's grandmother, Eugenie, after getting her pregnant. Eugenie was 15 years old at the time. What happened next?
2: So Vivian's family, the the maternal side, which is really the only side that she interacted with, is from a rural area in France. It was very Catholic. And so Vivian's mother gets pregnant, I'm sorry, Vivian's grandmother, and has Vivian's mother. The farmhand that got her pregnant would not marry her and would not even recognize that he was the father. So that led to huge humiliation for the family. And Eugenie, again, Vivian's grandmother, was basically ostracized. And eventually she fled when her daughter, Vivian's mother, Marie, was four years old. Um, Eugenie fled to America, and that's how they got here. Vivian's mother was raised by other relatives, and she had been rejected by her father, not even recognized, rejected by her mother. And she was, you know, the bastard child in rural France and she was a very unstable woman as you can imagine one would be growing up like that mm-hmm. and she married a guy named Charles Meyer they had almost nothing in common he ended up being an, a, a gambler and an alcoholic and he at some points was even violent so this mother who already you know w- was very difficult very insecure and unable to take care of herself, was married to this guy. And soon after Vivian was born, the father left the family and didn't support the family, and she didn't have a lot of interaction with her father. So she was raised by this unstable mother who ended up being very narcissistic and really just didn't take care of Vivian. And that is why she had a lot of trouble expressing herself, and she had a lot of trouble establishing relationships.
1: Yeah. You describe Eugenie, Vivian's grandmother, as a very kind and generous adult, and she had a remarkable career as a cook for some of New York's wealthiest families, and I think a loving relationship with Vivian. I'm wondering whether Eugenie's work in households might have contributed to Vivian
2: choosing to be a nanny, Eugenie probably was the only one in the family that had a positive influence on Vivian. Once she fled France as a young girl, she came here and she was going to be a housekeeper. But there was in the upper crust of society, people wanted French cooks. And so she became a French cook and she ended up being the cook for the very top of society, she worked for two different Vanderbilts in their mansion in Florida on Palm Beach and on Long Island. She worked for the Strauss family that owned Macy's in the city. And I do think it had an impact on Vivian because she sort of straddled both worlds, you know, from her own family and upbringing. She was poor. But then through Eugenie, they were exposed to the riches of the rich So it was such a bifurcated kind of experience for Vivian. But I really do think it affected her because Vivian loved quality. Her clothes were actually from designers. Mm -hmm. Her hats were from the best um, millenaries in Paris. And she really knew what she was talking about. In a lot of her self-portraits, she actually associates herself with quality. Like in one, um, she reflects herself in a Cartier tray, for instance. She did this um, throughout her whole photographic career.
1: Vivian was beloved by some of the children she worked with and seen as a monster, really, by others. They say she treated them quite cruelly. How do you reconcile this range of accounts?
2: Well, I think that the Ginsburg family, which is the one she knew the most, and really got to know, they didn't think that she was cold or detached at all. They really loved her. And other families didn't. It took a while for Vivian to open up with people, and she had to really feel secure. Now, there were some examples where Vivian was strict and um, exercised corporal punishment with the children, perhaps without permission of the adults. And Vivian, she had these emotional deprivations, which manifested themselves in some kind of mental illness, including this hoarding disorder. And she suffered from depression and she could be erratic. And some people experienced her during these down, dark times. And that particularly happened when she left the Ginsburg family until she could kind of get herself together again.
0: As you said, Vivian photographed a huge range of subjects, celebrities, politicians, wealthy people, laborers, drunks, criminals, herself, you know, you name it, dolls in trash cans. Judging from the reactions of experts in the world of photography, is there a kind of picture at which she particularly excelled? In other words, where did her artistic strengths lie?
2: I guess people mostly feel that it's her street photography. You know, she got the perfect camera for her. She bought what most professionals were using, which was the Roloflex. That camera is such that you hold it at your waist and you take your picture while you can look eye to eye with people and they don't realize that you're necessarily taking their picture. So you could do it very quietly and secretively. And she was able to uh, capture the authentic actions and motivations and feelings and expressions of people on the street. And that's what I think people like the best of her total portfolio.
0: Got it. Do you think your discoveries about Vivian's past help us better understand her art? And if so, how?
2: I do, because if you actually know about her history, some of the photographs take new meanings. For instance, there's a lot of photographs in the whole portfolio showing the mother-child relationship. You see only in, in a store the bottom half of a mother, her skirt, and a child hanging onto her skirt for protection. And you get the feeling that the child is really needing the mother to feel safe. There's a lot of different examples of that kind of photograph. Well, in fact, if you interview some of the different people that Vivian worked for, she liked to talk about the mother-child relationship a lot mm-hmm. and was you know amazed by it. And of course, it's because she had no mother-child relationship. So you could get a whole new outlook on that part of her portfolio. Yeah. Vivian died
1: in obscurity in 2009 before John Maloof first posted any of her pictures online. There's been a lot of speculation about whether Vivian would want her current fame. Some say obviously not, since she kept her photographs so private and was a private person generally. Some say she was an artist. What artist doesn't want their genius celebrated? Some say the posthumous fame is perfect. She shunned attention while she was alive, but she would have relished having her art seen and appreciated. What's your view?
2: Well, I guess it might sound a little self-serving because (laughs) I wrote about Vivian and I want her to want you know, what happened, but I actually genuinely believe in it. And here's why. So we we have this woman who's a hoarder. So she just absolutely could not let go of her photographs. So that was not never going to be possible. Even if she wanted to, she was emotionally unable to let them go. So first that tells you that she couldn't have shown her photograph. Also, though, it's important to note she knew she was good. There was a lot of examples. She wrote in a letter early on to her mentor in the in France that she um, had a stacks and stacks of photographs, and if she must say so herself, they're very good. You know, mm-hmm. she she got it. She knew what was going on. Now, also, it's interesting that she loves celebrity. She, uh, you know, spent her whole life photographing celebrities. She ran after, she would sneak onto film sets, she was starstruck by them. And so to think that she actually could be one of those people in her own right, I can't see why she wouldn't have wanted that. I guess just a few other points, because obviously I've thought about this quite a bit, is that she was very fatalistic. She believed once you're gone, you're gone. Mm -hmm. You don't make decisions, it's for other people to make. So she never made arrangements for her photographs. I mean, she knew she had all this stuff in storage lockers. But after death, it wasn't her problem, basically. Yet she did feel that important things should be kept for posterity. And there's some conversations she had on tape where some families would have something important. She said, oh, you should frame that and make sure that it's kept safe for posterity, you know, that kind of thing. So all of that information combined makes me think that She would have been fine with it. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay, 140,000 pictures. You've looked at all of them. How did you go about choosing which ones to use in the book? And how did you choose the cover image?
2: Oh, okay. Well, so first for the book, what I did was I took all the photographs and I looked at them chronologically because they were never put together before. And it tells a whole different story than you might think because there were pieces missing of her photo development and her life and particularly her self-portraits. And it was really interesting because her self-portraits, the nature of them, the look of them, the feeling of them correlated with what was going on in her life at the time. And only by putting them all together and then in the chronological order could you really see that. So what I did was... I wrote the narrative of her life and then used the photographs to Mm. show the support of it. You know, the best examples that I could, uh, you know, but it was very difficult, obviously. The book has a lot of photographs that have never been shown before. I use them for biographical reasons. And, you know, Vivian took them maybe for personal reasons. They aren't like necessarily her best photographs, but they tell a part of her story. Now, the the cover, well, of course I wanted to use a self-portrait. Right. And this self-portrait is just Vivian looking right at you. It's her first years of photography, 1954 in New York. It's the only one where she looks you in the eye. Mm-hmm. And um, to me, it was a time when she was creating self-portraits that showed her as a professional photographer After New York, she rarely did that. You won't see those kind of photographs of her anymore because she wasn't considering herself that. So this was, to me, just the essence of, of Vivian and her photography. And that's why I chose it.
0: Do you have a personal favorite image?
2: Well, I have a couple images that I love. And the reason I love them goes beyond just that they're great images that other people love. But that they appear on contact sheets in such an extraordinary way. So let me give you an example. So Vivian's known for only taking one shot and moving on. And of course, now we all take a million shots, you know to get something perfect. Yeah, but she was so confident and so skilled that she would see what she wanted to take, take it, and move on. And there aren't very many examples of her even taking, two frames of the same thing. So, there's one contact sheet for instance, there's 12 shots on it. Of course, almost anyone would be happy to have even one exhibition print from, you know, 12 shots because that rarely happens. So, here's a contact sheet of 12 shots. On that 12 is one shot I like very much which is the woman in front of the New York library kind of a rising out and you're really focused on her and she has an impassive kind of expression and she's dressed exquisitely and Vivian took that photograph which many people like from a bus she was just going by and unless you knew that you wouldn't you know realize that but it was sort of amazing but not only that the cover of my book was one of those 12 frames and another exhibition print of a chair kind of smoking is on those 12 frames so there are at least three exhibition prints from 1954, two years into photographing on that contact wow. sheet.
0: Yeah, that's, that's amazing. That's quite yeah. a hit rate. Yeah. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly.
1: I say this with the utmost confidence. I could take a thousand shots, and not a single one would be exhibition quality <laughs> to have I'm serious. to have three exhibition prints out of twelve frames, I mean, that takes an eye and an instinct and a lightning fast dexterity and an intuitive understanding of humanity because Vivian captures something about us in those images. They are not solely aesthetically striking, though they certainly are that as well. I mean, I love books like Anne's that offer a gateway into understanding that degree of talent. I agree.
0: It's astonishing that Vivian got it right on the first take as often as she did. I mean, can you imagine writing a first draft of a book and being like, this is great, off to the copy editor, <laughs> and not being delusional? I mean, I can't even write an email without revising
1: it. I mean, agony. Agony. Every act, every minute of writing is agony. Yeah. And on that (laughs) fabulous (laughs) note, that is it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.
0: As always, you can reach us at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. You can find more about Anne and her book at www.vivianmeyer.com, And Meyer is spelled M-A-I-E-R.
1: Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eviohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming.
0: Go listen to Book Dreams with Julie